Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward one conversation at a time will provide a raw, fun, and not-so-average perspectives on important everyday issues. So tune in every month with Liz, Mania, Monica, and Katie. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our mini-series recording. This month, we're focusing on domestic violence awareness because since it's October, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we thought it would be really interesting and exciting to have conversations with our partners. So I'm here, Monica, with my partner, Nick. Hey, I'm Nick. <laughs> okay, don't gotta be that stiff, but do you want to tell us, um, Nick, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit um, about yourself, who you are, and how we met maybe, but just where, where, what are you up to these days? Hey, I'm Nick. I am 27 years old. I'm Chinese American, currently a law student at UC Davis School of Law, third year, Woo. about to graduate. Uh, Monica yes. and I met working at OCA Asian Pacific American Advocates. Um, and yeah, we've been together for a couple of years now. How long? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> Four years. Four and a couple of months. Four and some change. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited today. Thanks, Nick, um, for being willing to, you know, have this conversation with me when the girls and us got together to discuss how we wanted to frame our conversations this month, we felt like it wasn't enough to just talk about the issues and causes of, around domestic violence in the Hmong community, but also dive deeper into what are some of the solutions that we see happening. And so, you know, today I think we just want to talk about what the male perspective is and really help open up the conversation to um, you as my my partner, like our male allies, right, in, in this around this issue. And so... Um, I don't know, maybe just start off, or do you, what, what do you know about domestic violence, Nick, or, or do you know much about it, or is it something that's like kind of a foreign issue area to you? I think I know a little bit, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert by any means. Growing up, or, or even just, you know, now as an adult, like, have you ever um, witnessed domestic violence or experienced it, and, and like, you know, what, what were your reactions, or like, how did, how did you respond to those situations at all uh well not primarily really but you know i think some of my friends have uh experienced it and um uh, been the victim of domestic violence and also the victim of false accusations of domestic violence so Mm. i think um it's really interesting yeah in in that sense i've secondarily experienced it but certainly not primarily so I don't know if you know this, but the reason why the other girls and I were really passionate about tackling this issue because there are um, high domestic violence uh, incidents and, and rates in the Hmong community. And I think just within the last like month and um, just in the last week, there have been two, three, I think, murder-suicides in, in the Hmong community. And so, you know, obviously, I know you're not Hmong. But you are Asian, you're Chinese American, and so maybe you can speak from that perspective. But like, what do you think, as a man, a cisgender, heterosexual man, what are some of the factors that you think contributes to DV in our community? Whether and you can define community however you want to define it. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a third 
to fifth generation Chinese American. So I feel a little bit like an outsider looking in on Asian culture sometimes. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think a big part of it is uh, when it does happen, there's an incredible amount of shame that accompanies it. You know, in Asian families, I think frequently um, they don't want to lose face. Yeah. And that's, I think yeah. things like this are, are frankly, yes, are shameful for families, but it gets to the point where the shame is more important to the family than actually addressing the situation and the safety of the people involved. And, you know, I think, I think more broadly speaking, I think there's uh, a the larger issue of I think in the Asian community it's very fairly frequent for people to justify corporal punishment hitting their kids and that's a conversation that I've had with people that I know and I respect and you know they kind of pretty in a cavalier fashion say yeah I I think I would hit my kids you know Mm. just to teach them a lesson and I think when you do that you're teaching people at a very young age that violence is the answer and you're teaching them Mm. how to control people through physical violence and how to enforce you know patriarchy and uh, kind of the existing power structures and relationships uh, through physical violence and I think that's something that needs to be addressed Mm -hmm. um, and is not really talked about in you know uh, Asian culture as much and I always think of that like Russell Peters skit you know, where he talks about hitting his kids and like, you know, how uh, white people never hit their kids. And that's I don't know why. if I've, I've seen that episode yet. Yeah, you should you should watch it because I mean, it's it, he kind of he kind of jokes around about, you know, getting beaten as a child. And in my opinion, I think it's it's teaching people something very early on that is hard to untrain from their minds. And, and you think that that is one of the, the contributing factors to why the the domestic violence behaviors continues on as, as children grow up, right? Because they, they learned it as a young age. So victims of abuse repeat patterns that they've experienced, right? Is that yeah, what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the common um, saying is, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And I think it's true. People who have been abused uh, frequently abuse others. I think it's, it's a cycle. It's important to break the cycle, but not right. everyone's prepared to do that then yeah how do we have these conversations with is it with the parents is it with teaching parents now and in or breaking the cultural norms that it's not okay to hit your kid to abuse your children or yeah I mean I think it's something that you know each of us can really examine within ourselves and ask whether it's something that we want to be a part of you know perpetuating a cycle of violence mm-hmm. um certainly there's other contributing factors but it's 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 hard to make policies that will kind of reach into the home and make sure that these types of things don't happen. But uh, Do you think if there were some policies in, in place or, or, you know, as a law student and as someone who's done a lot of, um, who's been around like the political space and like lawmakers and policymakers, like, do you think that is one of the ways we could tackle it and or it would be an effective way to support domestic violence survivors? You know, I think it's it's difficult. For me to say because I don't I, I can't say that I'm well versed in this issue but right. I, I I will say that when you get to kind of family law and uh, domestic violence things get very complicated I think first because victims are very scared to speak up 
It's right. very dangerous for victims to speak up. Right. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, I think when the police show up, a lot of times they're more interested in being left alone than their own safety. And, you know, there's often kids involved, too. Yeah. I think it's difficult. I think one th- one policy change that I think is, is not necessarily any more achievable, but getting guns out of the homes of people who are abusers. Uh, if, I mean, if it was my... If, if, if it was my decision, I'd just say no one should have guns. But, you know, I think getting guns out of the homes of people who've been convicted of abuse. And, uh, you know, one thing they talk about fairly frequently is red flag, flag laws where mm, they what can... Are, what are those? So red flag laws, if someone's been convicted of certain crimes, then agency can take the guns out of the home. Um, I think we're going to have to see how that gets implemented. I'm personally worried about the potential civil liberties implications of taking things away from people Uh, without due process but you know i think it is a pretty important issue to get guns out of the homes of abusers because then you know you get to the point where things escalate to the point where someone gets shot and killed yeah yeah i mean there's this statistic that i believe says anytime there's a gun present in a domestic violence situation the rate of danger for women or victims in this case increases by 500%. Like, that's freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, the gun violence aspect or the, the issue with gun guns and gun control is something um, that <clears throat> the other ladies and I have also discussed about, um, you know, tackling in, in respect to domestic violence, but that'll probably have to be, say, for a separate episode. C- continuing our conversation about how we can continue to break the cycle in addition to that right what do we do or i don't know if i can ask this or if it makes sense to ask but like how do we hold like not only offenders accountable but like how do we hold each other accountable our our allies or like why do you think this domestic violence issue has only primarily been you know led and run by women and where, where are the men in this situation i don't and i'm not asking you to speak on behalf of all men but as a man who's i guess as an outsider looking in what do do you think as women you know people leading the movement what we can do to include others in the conversation and others as in our male counterparts well frankly the reason that i think people or women are the leaders of this movement is because they're the ones who are most deeply affected by it you know for the same reason that people of color are generally the leaders of the civil rights movement um because those issues are the ones that affect them the the most most. right and yeah i mean i think i think for a lot of people because this is seen as something that's shameful and embarrassing it's not talked about frequently enough and we do tend to focus on kind of the most egregious examples which is of course yeah like the murder suicide type situations but out, outside of that there's a lot of this happening that um, people may be aware of and they may just not think very much of it and that's unfortunate but. right I, I guess following up to that then don't even though it's a primarily an issue that is most impacted by women don't you also do you think also though it's also on men or male counterparts to be part of the solution yeah well I mean course they should be a part of the solution i mean they're in general the primary perpetrators of right. domestic violence so they're not the only perpetrators but they're i think numerically i can't cite any statistics but 
I would say they're the primary ones. Right, yeah, I would agree. I think in that case, I think men could do a better job of, I think, communicating to each other uh, about these issues and expressing how they feel about these issues uh, on a more casual basis and in settings with other men. And I think, I think it's fair to say that. Too often, I think domestic abusers kind of get to do whatever they want you know it's uh it's sunday so it's football season <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah like some of these players like they you know they've been pretty they've been accused and it's pretty well known that they're abusers and yet they continue to you know lace up every sunday and right. get out there and play and you know it, it makes it it makes it hard to watch the game because you think wow, should I really be supporting, supporting this. Right. these people while they're, you know, still out there? But, I, I mean, frankly, I think, like, as a society, we just haven't placed the priority on this issue that we need to. And Do you um, think we're in a place to now? Do you think society's ready? Like, why, why or why do you think associations like the NFL and the NBA, and, you know, are, are willing to sweep it under the rug and just pretend like their players are, are fine people who haven't committed such acts, like... Yeah. Well, I'll say the NBA is a lot better than the NFL. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're at we're at an important point in how we view violence against women. I know, like Me Too, is kind of a different subject, but I think we are at a point where we're more willing to believe survivors, and I think that's a positive thing because these claims need to be investigated. Right. Absolutely. You know, certainly it's it's always. It's always a tragedy when someone's falsely accused, but it's even a greater tragedy when someone ends up dead because no one believes that person. So I think, you know, we we have to just focus more on that. And I think, you know, for prosecutors and law enforcement, they're, they're in a tough situation. You know, they have to balance out, I think, what, you know, people's privacy, they have to balance out the importance of keeping families together. You know, even if they aren't always perfect, but, you know, I think they could be doing more. Right. I mean, I was just going to ask, like, don't you still think, though, like, the reporting aspect of it and the processing aspect of collecting this data and evidence on, like, when when victims do report their abuse, I feel like there's still a gap or something lacking there on, on, on the law enforcement end or on the those agencies end, right? Like, I feel like there's still more that we could do. But I'm, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is more that that we can do. And I think some of it is just, like, broader criminal justice stuff. But, like, with a lot of these people, like, the only thing they can do is either throw them in prison or keep them on parole or probation. And I think there's something in the middle there, you know, probably some more kind of solutions that involve diverting them from that kind of behavior you Mm -hmm. know i don't know if it's taking glasses restorative justice something like that um that you know will actually contribute to their rehabilitation rather than just locking them up locking them up yeah or you know keeping them out and potentially dangerous there's not enough women's shelters no you know there's Mm -hmm. there's not enough ways for i think women to get away from men or anyone who's being domestically abused to get away from their their perpetrators perpetrators. so i think that's another thing you know one thing i wanted to go back to in terms of 
how you know we can hold each other accountable and like what we think are some of the factors that we should sort of stop to or prevent this culture or behaviors of domestic violence but do you think rape culture and like quote-unquote locker room talk when men get together like contributes to I, I guess in your opinion what do you think that's also um, something that contributes to domestic violence behaviors or or something that I, I don't know like not necessarily condones it but um, perverts it maybe mm, you know I think because uh... I'm wondering maybe if 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 we stopped or we you know called out our, our men on stopping this quote-unquote locker room talk i don't know i mean you know at least the people that i hang out with i you know we have a pretty strong views on uh you know domestic violence and it's it's hard for me to say that anything that that we say is really kind of promoting that but i'm sure in other circles there are people say things and i think people laugh it off a lot the whole Chris Brown, Rihanna thing, a lot of people laugh that off. Oh, yeah, um, that's awful. You know, I personally can't listen to Chris Brown anymore. Right. Uh, which I guess isn't that much of a loss, but... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there is kind of this urge for us to, you know, diminish what's going on and joke about it, but it's real serious because it's real people who are going through this, so... Right, you know. Right. And you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Chris Brown and Rihanna because clearly that was some really fucked up shit that went down and, and I don't know if they had the best, you know, relationship. We don't know what happened between them, but part of our reason for ha- having this conversation, right, is also talking about what we can do to be more proactive than reactive, right? So I think in that sense, we also wanted to discuss, you know, what does a healthy relationship look like, right? Either between partner to partner or even like what you were referencing earlier, like authoritative figures, like parents to their children, right? What, but since, you know, you're not a parent and I'm not either, maybe we can just focus on the partner to partner relationships. But um, um, what does a healthy relationship look like to you, to us? Maybe I can think about this too. <laughs> I think what a what it looks like is, you know, you're both helping each other achieve your goals and being there for each other, I think, like, emotionally and sometimes financially. But uh, I think there's a component to that. But I think ultimately it's, it's being a support system for each other. And, and not being controlling over another person, right? Or Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of people you know, want to be in control of the relationship or want to control the other person's, like, activities, what they're doing. Um, And, you know, and and a lot of times in a more innocuous way, but I think ultimately, you know, resisting (coughs) that urge to want to kind of control each other, I think in that, because, you know, it it can can lead to some pretty dark places, so. Yeah, going off of that, it's the urge to not want to control is building trust right and having trust in each other communicating with each other right open communication what do you think has worked for us i mean we've been in our last four and a half years together we lived together for two and a half years one year we lived in a long distance relationship we're still kind of are right now. <laughs> um, the medium distance. The medium distance. The distance has decreased significantly, thank goodness. But 
when I was living in DC and you had moved to California and when we were living together in DC together, like, I don't know, what do you think worked for us? Uh, uh, what, what makes, what works for us? Or I think just the, um, you know, allowing each other to grow in their own space and, you know, contributing not as a person who's going to tell you what to do, but um, somebody who's going to encourage you yeah. to kind of be the best person you can be. I think that's that's helpful and valuable. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree. I think, yeah, there have been many moments when um, I've had many, many lows, <laughs> and you've always been there to, you know, remind me of my, of my worth and my um, capabilities and... Hopefully I've done the same for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, for me too, you know. I mean, I'm being in law school is like this really stressful enterprise. And, you know, it's helpful to have somebody with you, I think, to be able to talk things through. And, you know, especially if you're uh, really kind of pounding the pavement, you know. Yeah. I think um, a lot of times you get wrapped up in, like, what you should be doing. And I think... Um, having someone to talk through that and that knows you on that intimate partner level is is good that is key and i guess you know as we close out this conversation i i'm wondering if you have any parting words or call out to actions or for for other men and other or other male partners um and in their relationships you know what can they do to do better to be better and um or to be better partners uh, maybe one one thing like uh, that you think men can do to support the movement right to to be better allies in, in tackling this um issue of domestic violence well one thing is just having more kind of open and honest conversations with each other about it and i think i, I don't think you need to publicly express it all the time but i think you know in situations where it's appropriate you should state that you're not okay with it and you know you can you can vote vote with your wallet too you know don't support yeah. musicians or players or anybody who uh is a domestic uh, abuser yeah i would agree there for um, sure and and yeah i think that's that's two easy things two easy things people can do yeah i mean I, I, one thing i hope also as as your partner and as uh, someone who grew up with a lot of brothers and and men and and you know uncles and cousins um i think i would also hope and like to see um male allies just speaking out more and and defending victims of abuse right and just also believing in believing in women right or believing in survivors i think that's something that i feel like me and some of my the other ladies have seen is just like many men tend to you know, blame the victims immediately. And so hopefully the male allies and, and male counterparts in our lives will do better to, you know, call itself out and to, to believe women when, when, yeah, when they report such instances of abuse. Well, thanks so much, hun, for doing this. <laughs> Any Anything else before we close out? Nope. Well, I'm good. Are you excited that this is your first podcast you've done? Uh, I don't know, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a tough topic. Yeah, tough topic, but 
again, like what you said, it's it's important to have, right? So yeah. Thanks for tuning in, Nick. Thanks for listening, folks. Or stay tuned for our next episode, which um, will feature another partner and um, you know what they what they think about the uh, issue. And uh, follow us on our social media channels, and we'll uh, talk to y'all soon.